Hello, Michael. Hey, Sammy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for making the time to hang out and talk about the NBA and the, the Boston Celtics and the Big Three. Oh, no problem. Yeah, look, really look forward to it. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy. Couldn't guard white mamba if my life depended on it. Yunan. On July 31st, 2007, the Boston Celtics traded for Kevin Garnett to solidify their big three and reboot the super team era of the NBA. I want to go back to that time, unfortunately not via a DeLorean or even a hot top time machine, that's dope, but with a book. The big three, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and the rebirth of the Boston Celtics. This book was written by Boston sports writer Michael Hawley. This is his seventh book, having previously written books about Tom Brady, Belichick, the Red Sox, but this is his first NBA book. I really dug it. I hadn't understood what happened to Rondo with the Celtics. Remember how good that was? Nor did I fully grasp how the big three came together until I read this saga. About 20 minutes into this conversation, I asked Michael a question about his Christian faith. But really, I'm curious about faith in the larger sense. Whether you go to church or not, sports is all about faith. Faith, the GM will draft the right player. Or faith, the owners will hire the best coach. Everyone who has seen a last-minute shot go up in the air can relate to prayer. The way you hold your breath and just wheel that ball into the hoop. Or the murmured prayers when a key player twists their ankle, or bangs their knee. Please, God, let it be okay. Please, God, I hope it's not that bad. Hope every single season starts with promise and potential for future glory, like a Christian expecting heaven. And of course, redemption. When Kevin Garnett was traded to Boston, that was his redemption. The Celtics saved Kevin Garnett. As an analogy, spiritual faith mirrors the passion and joy fans have for their NBA team. And yet, with all the hope and faith and prayers, answered and unanswered, for all the preaching and teaching, the burden of prophecy and the weight of legacy, sometimes a team just needs a miracle, or two, or three. Miracles are spiritual surprise parties. And in sports, for the fans of one team, miracles are so uplifting. Did you see that? Miracles. Here now is my conversation with sports writer, TV host, university professor, Michael Hawley, whose NBA book is The Big Three, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and yes, the rebirth of the Boston Celtics. How are you feeling about the Celtics this year? Frustrated, <laughs> yeah. Frustrating, <laughs> yeah. Uh, confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they uh, they're uneven and uh, inconsistent. Yeah, they had some injury problems, and uh, last night at least they just weren't playing hard enough. Yeah, the injuries is what I was gonna say. Like I can give them a little bit of grace for that, but like you said, they're they are uneven. They're a little bit up and down. It's like I don't know if they're bored or just not really committed to it or what it is. Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird to see. I, I didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I, I really can't really com- I can't compare them to any other Celtic team I've seen in the past few years. Um, that one, you know, I think again, you know, Kyrie's last season yeah. uh, in Boston, that team was had a better record, but that team was hard to figure out too. Looked like they figured it out. Remember, they they went, they went to the playoffs, they swept Indiana, and then they won their first game against Milwaukee in the second mm-hmm. round. Then they just lost four straight and went down in a in a blaze of uh, just mediocrity. <laughs> The Miami Heat showed last year too that like it's almost like the regular season doesn't necessarily always matter. You know what I mean? As long as you just can get in the playoffs, uh, then you can kind of maybe refocus, regroup, and then kind of rumble. But I'm not sure if they can over if the Celtics. If you have it in you. Yeah, if you have only it in you. Only if you have it in you. Mm-hmm. Only if it's in you. You know, if it's not in you, you can reset and refocus, and then you start the playoffs, and and the same thing happens. So you really got to have. Something special. I'm just not sure. I think this group, you got to play hard in the regular season and figure it out because you're just so young. Your two best players are 24 and 22. So they need to learn. Even they, as great as they are, they need to learn how to to get to carry a team through an entire season, which they've never done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, they got to do that too. Oh, yeah. So you ready? You ready to go? I'm ready to go. We're gonna. All right. We're gonna shift from the uh, the present to the to the past, and um, right. so uh, congratulations. Uh, your book, uh, the Big Three: Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and the Rebirth of the Boston Celtics, is uh, your seventh book project. But it's your first NBA book. So you've covered now like Tom Brady, the Red Sox. So I want to start at the end. Uh, in the acknowledgments, you you admit to struggling with self doubt as well as the long process to get this book done. Why was this book so hard? This is your first basketball book, but it's not your first book. Yeah, it was uh, it's a good question. I think it was hard for a couple of reasons. One, it wasn't the original idea. And so in the original idea, anytime you, you've got a book idea and you think it's going to be a, a good project and you're, you're committed to it and it doesn't turn out the way you thought it would, no, there's some there's some there's some humbling that goes on there, and there's some disappointment. So, the the book, even though that that first idea, even though I'm glad I didn't write that book, I know that now. But I'm saying going back at the time, at the beginning of the 2012-2013 season, uh, that was supposed to be the idea. The idea of following the team as it tried to recapture, you know, one more championship run. You know, Ray Allen was already in Miami. Mm-hmm. That Garnett and Pierce and Rondo were the only three guys remaining from the 2008 championship team. Doc Rivers was still there as a coach. And so, you know, I thought, yeah, that's just a good book idea. I did some traveling with the Celtics, really put some work into it. But I think, you know, midway through that season, it was clear to me that that wasn't quite the book uh, that I was looking for. And I tried to salvage it in, uh, in the middle of 2013. I couldn't salvage it then. I didn't just walk away from it. I had all that research, but nah, you know, that's not quite it. And so that, you think about that. That's 2013. Then, you know, 14, 15 happens. Then 2016, I'm doing another book on, uh, on, on Belichick and Brady. In 2017, I did another book on uh, David Ortiz and his memoir. Mm-hmm. And then, then I started teaching <laughs> at Boston University. So now at this point, I'm, what, five years removed from the original book idea, five or six years removed from it. 
And then you start to think, okay, was this meant to be, or what's it going to be? And then it just hit me. It hit me that that's what it was. It was supposed to be the big three book all along. I had some distance uh, from the story. And with distance came clarity. Now, the self-doubt is just the respect, the amount of respect I have for uh, the basketball writing community. I mean, there are just so many good books out there mm-hmm. uh, across the NBA, across the all teams, but specifically books on the Celtics. Man, you've got a team that's been around since 1946, so there have been many, many authors who have written about the Celtics. I, I wanted to focus on, on writing a book that would add, that would add something, that add a new layer to the canon that's already well established. You sound like, um, you know those classic scenes in uh, cop TV shows and movies where there's always that scene where the chief takes a hotshot cop off the case because he's too close to it. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? And it, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it sounds like. Like, you know what I mean? Because like you said, you're not writing a quote-unquote just an NBA book about some team like maybe the Portland Trailblazers or the T-Wolves or some other teams. Like you're writing about the Celtics, and there's so much history that comes with it. It's almost like a burden. Like I almost feel bad for the kids who get drafted for the Celtics, right? Because there's a different type of responsibility than if they go to another team. Yeah, that's something. That's interesting. You, you look at it that way, and you know those guys who because some I think some guys are the guys who know the history. They could be overwhelmed by it, or they could be excited by the history. Like, I remember Paul Pierce, the rookie, and I just knew he had it from his rookie year. Uh, he, he loved he loved being a part of it, even though he was not, he didn't grow up as a Celtics fan. California he knew kid. What Celtics, yeah, he knew what Celtics-Lakers meant, mm-hmm. and I think he, he, he wanted to step into that, you know, that, that, that tradition. Uh, Antoine Walker was the same way. You know, he loved it. He, he remembers his first workout. Celtics workout. He had Larry Bird there. He had Dennis Johnson there, Red Auerbach. So he loved, oh, wow. Oh, so. <laughs> but, you know, there are other players who, who don't look at it as a burden at all. They look at it as, I'm not even aware of the history. <laughs> you know? they, I guess their ignorance is uh, in some ways. But uh, you, bring, you bring up a good point when it comes to like this team, you gotta write about this stuff. You better be right. You better be ready to talk about something of substance. Now, I liked your Timberwolves example. I'll pick on them, but I will not <laughs> pick on the Portland Trailblazers because if, for my money, the best basketball book ever written uh, was actually written about the Trailblazers. And that's David Halberstam's Breaks of the Game. Yep. And that is so good. Uh, and, 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 and so what's so great about it is well, there are many things great about it, but he, he was in the moment. This is like, I think he focused on a period from say 70, just after the championship. So I say 78 to 80. Mm-hmm. And so the numbers didn't match up. There's no salary cap at the time in the league. Uh, the league was smaller, but it was so true and so genuine, uh, his approach and so novel the way he approached it that you can look back at it in 2020, you know, 40 years later and say, oh, that's still relevant, even though the numbers change. So, yeah, it's, that, that's what you want. You want to be able to uh, produce a book, uh, not necessarily David Halberstam, uh, not, many, not many of us out there can uh, play, play in that <laughs> arena, but to, to have a book that will 
that will speak some truth in the moment and going forward. Yeah, and in your case, your book starts with the sale of the Celtics. And in the past, like, 10 years or so, we've seen, like, the Jazz recently got sold. I think it was just last year. Uh, Warriors and, of course, the Clippers got sold. But what's remarkable, remarkable is that, like, the new Celtic owners didn't just buy a sports team. They bought this whole family, like, the Celtic family. And I, I get, like, the Clippers and the Warriors don't have that culture. Like, you were just saying, like, Portland Trailblazers have some of that culture. But, like, buying the Celtics, they got, like, Red Arbach and Bill Russell and Tommy Heinsohn and ML Carr, all these greats. That's incredibly unusual for, like, when you just, quote-unquote, buy a sports team. Yeah, you know, and, and I think this, uh, Sammy, I mean, they had good timing. You know, Rick Grosbeck had good timing. He really wanted to buy the Red Sox, who were sold a year earlier. And, uh, you know, his, his dad is a, you know, a co-founder of uh, Continental, Continental Cablevision and uh, a business professor and a huge baseball fan. And, you know, Rick is a baseball fan. They really wanted to be in on Red Sox ownership. That didn't happen. You know, he looked around. He said, oh, the Bruins, they're not going to be sold anytime soon. The Patriots, the Kraft family is going to hold on to that. Now the Red Sox are sold. If I want any chance of owning a Boston sports team and I want to do that, it's going to be the Celtics. And it was just great timing because Paul Gaston, I think he had come to the point where he gotten to the point, you know, just he, he wasn't as invested in the team as he had been previously. He hadn't been to many games in the, in the, in the like, two or three years uh, before he met with Grosbeck. Uh, and, and the Celtics were still a valuable franchise. So, well, you can make a lot of money if, if, if they're a, a bit of a headache for you and you have different interests. Mm. To make a lot of money, sell the team, and, and go about your life, and just hope that the new owners are are ones who understand what the Celtics Celtics tradition is all about. And everything worked out for everybody. Paul Gaston got a record price for his for his team. Rick Grosbeck was into it. Uh, he's a local guy, and he decided, yes, we got Celtics tradition, and that's important. But we also have some revenue streams that we haven't tapped into. If we run this thing the right way really, you know, bring our corporate expertise and our entrepreneurial entrepreneurial expertise to running this basketball team, we can make a lot of money and we can win a championship. And that's what happened. And is that why the subtitle is the rebirth of the Boston Celtics? Because yes, I know as fans, right. right, we tend to focus on what happens on the parquet floor, but you're also talking about now the office and the organization. Like who were some of the well, early... Both. Yeah, right? So who were some of the early hires that stood out to you once the new owners bought the team? Yeah, I mean, you, you think about it. I, um, look, at the end of the 1990s, the Celtics just went over the 1990s, just missed the playoffs <laughs> every year. So uh, I think the last year they made the playoffs, I'm just trying to think of this, I think it was 1995, uh, at the end of the 90s. So the like, like 95 season, they were eight, eight seeds, and they lost to uh, uh, Shaquille O'Neal's Orlando Magic. So that, that was the last game at Boston Garden. I remember they, they lost that uh, playoff series in four games. And so, you know, you, you make it in 95, 95, 96, nothing. 96, 97, you have the worst record uh, in team history. Uh, 97, 98, you got Rick Pitino uh, coming over and they got a, a, a significant win improvement, but they were so bad the year before. So you add 21 wins, plus 21 wins, that just gets you to 36 uh, so that's not the play, that's not a playoff team, and the next year they they didn't make the playoffs. So they really were sliding out of the 1990s, not even contenders. And 
executive. Once once Patino left, they got a little bit of a bump, but the rebirth is not just getting a bump and getting yourself to the conference semifinals or even the conference finals, but really looking at yourself as a championship organization because that's how the Celtics have, have always been judged. Uh, the, the 90s are the only decade uh, in Celtics history where they didn't have a championship. You know, every you know, mm-hmm. you get you get championships in the '80s and the '70s and the '60s and the '50s, and you get nothing in the '90s. So, for some organizations, you say, "Hey, what's the big deal?" Yeah, we got one in the '80s or one in the '70s. Isn't that good enough? No, not in Boston. It's not. So that rebirth was getting this franchise, um, you know, stepping up your marketing game, stepping stepping up your business game, your game presentation, and uh, the talent on the roster as well. So. Rick Grossbeck, he invites Steve Kaliuka to be his co-owner. Then they invite Bob Epstein to be their co-owner. Uh, they hire Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge hires Doc Rivers. They bring in Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey brings in Mike Zarin. I mean, these are some of the big names still. Rich Gotham, also uh, the president of the organization. These are some of the people who are either still there right now or big names in the NBA. You had Daryl Morey in Philadelphia, Doc Rivers in Philadelphia right now, and Zarin came in as an intern as now the assistant general manager. So that's the rebirth of not just taking a team and saying, oh, we can make some money here, let's keep it going, let's satisfy the fans, we'll make the playoffs, we'll bow out in the second round, and we'll do it again next year. No, really raising that standard back to a level that longtime Celtics fans were used to. You used the word timing a couple of times. You've also said how, like, they didn't win anything during the 90s, and that's clear, too. Like, the 90s obviously were dominated a lot more by uh, Jordan and the Bulls and stuff. And so, you know, even early on, you kind of see some of the Celtics stuff, some of the leftover 80s team kind of battling Jordan. But for the most part, then they fade. So is this book really also just, like, celebrating or recognizing timing? Because sports fans tend to get impatient, right? When somebody gets drafted or, like, a team is championship or bust, these kind of phrases, we get impatient with timing, like... Players need time to develop, and it was just everything needed to come together, as you said. You need to get Doc Rivers. You needed to get Danny Ainge. Uh, you need to make the Kevin Garnett trade in 2007. So is this a book about timing and patience as well? I would say it's about building and vision. And, 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 and you're right. Timing and patience you know, do go into that. If you have a vision and you don't have time to, <laughs> to put it into place, then uh, all right, it's not going to work, right? So that that was part of it for Danny Ainge, you know, coming in and his first trade, you know, on paper. You look at it, you say, man, that's not a great trade. Your first, your first, first major move is trading Antoine Walker <laughs> and get back, you know, Yeri Welsh and uh, you know Chris Mills and uh, you get a, you get a first round pick. Uh, you get a, a, you know Ray Friends and that contract. Like, yeah, hey, what's he doing? Why is he trading for that contract? And so. If you just look at it, if you're looking for that splash, that initial splash from Danny Ainge, you didn't get it. But he's a guy who told them uh, when they were interviewing him, said, look, I believe in franchise stability. I don't believe in coming in and firing a coach. I don't believe in just like uh, uh, just like a quick fix and making the playoffs, and that's good enough. I really want to build a championship organization. And he sold them on that. And the irony of, of Danny Ainge saying that it's so unusual, it's still unusual, for general managers to say, I want stability uh, in, in the front office. Now, the team is a different, uh, different story because uh, Danny was very aggressive with trading 
with the roster, but people around him, scouts and coaches, uh, people in the front office, he wanted that to be as stable as possible as long as those people were doing their jobs. The irony there is that the coach he inherited, Jim O'Brien, just didn't, it wasn't used to anybody thinking like that. So Danny meets Jim O'Brien. He talks with him for like three or four days and said, that's my guy. And he gives him a contract extension. Jim O'Brien starts looking at the moves of Danny and says, he's crazy. Like, I'm trying to win games right now. And Danny says, don't worry about right now, Jim. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not the championship team. I'm not judging you on going 35 and 47 in year one if that's what happened. This is a long game. And so they really couldn't get on the same page because Jim O'Brien didn't see that long game and he didn't necessarily trust it because he didn't know Danny that well, even though Danny had given him a contract extension. So there are a lot of things that, that play into this. When you see it, it's just, it's patience and it's building. Uh, that first trade, I told you that wasn't great with Antoine to get that first round pick. Well, that first round pick, they were able to trade that uh, again and start building some of the pieces that that built the 2008 championship team. So they were able to trade Ray Prince and create salary cap space. And uh, they, they, they traded Yuri Welsh. They were get, able to get a first rounder back for Yuri Welsh. And, you know, all these things. And that, that they, they traded one of their free agents, uh, Mike James. And uh, the, the, the trade for Mike James turned into a draft pick that became, you know, Tony Allen. And so like, they're just doing all these things. Danny's first draft. His first draft pick, Marcus Banks, not very good. But in the same draft, he drafts uh, Kendrick Perkins at the back of the first round. So here, here's Kendrick Perkins. He doesn't look like he's going to be a, a starting center on the championship team in 2005. Nobody's thinking that. But by 2008, there he is, a mainstay with that, with that starting five. And, and by the time he's traded – uh, in 2011, people are incensed. Like, how do they trade Perk? He's a key <laughs> figure. So you think about everything about the progression. He's drafted in 2003. He's not really appreciated until about five years later, mm -hmm. or four years. I'll call it four years later, 2007-2008 season. So he's not really appreciated until four years later, and then and then four years after that, uh, people are saying, how how can we live without Perk? I mean, that's just that happens. Uh, it's not just with the Celtics. It happens a, a lot in the NBA where we're so used to looking for immediate answers, immediate gratification. And, and sometimes it, it takes a while. If you've got the right person to build your team, you've got to trust that they know what they're doing. Now, if they prove that they don't know what they're doing time after time, then, yeah, you've got to move on. But, but Danny, uh, in the front hall, he always has support of ownership because they just believed – uh, and the way he looked at the NBA and the way he looked at this roster. So I want to stay with the acknowledgments because there's a section in the acknowledgments where you write about prayer and virtually attending churches. And I want to know, like, just to kind of extend the thread of what you're just talking about now, does your spiritual faith, does it mirror the faith that sports fans have? Like, is it the same kind of hope for things that are unseen and recognizing that? Yeah, this may work out, but right now it doesn't look so good. Trading Antoine Walker, it doesn't look so good. But you gotta have faith. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I haven't I haven't thought of it that way, but I, I agree with it. <laughs> I, mean, I agree uh with your your analysis of that. 
you know, I'm I am a child of the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just am. You know, my uh, as I wrote in the acknowledgement, uh, my my great grandfather uh, started a church uh, that still exists today. Uh, Mount Calvary, of course, Calvary. You know, Baptist <laughs> Mount what Mount Calvary? Yes, <laughs> uh, Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Akron, Ohio. Uh, he was a, a co-founder of it, the pastor of it. Uh, it's our family church. Uh, my grandmother and my grandfather met uh, at that church. So it's my my grandmother's father, her church, and she meets uh, one of the ministers there. So my grandfather uh, is uh, was a reverend. And so uh, my mom, she didn't have the title of reverend, but you know, uh, PBS has a series right now called The Black Church. Yeah, Henry Gates. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah. And I'm watching it, and at one point they're talking about the AME Church, which was founded by you know, Richard Allen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the church, and there was this whole division over race. And so the white Methodist church, they did not let women preach. And so now uh, the black congregants break off, led by Richard Allen. They start their own AME. They start their own church. And there's a woman in the congregation who says, I think I've been called to preach. And Richard Allen says, well, so be it. Yes, you are. And so she was a preacher, which was a pretty unusual and still unusual in some churches. And I say that, I give you that whole preamble, because I think my mother is, I think she was called to preach. Like she's, She teaches Sunday school classes and, uh, you know, missionary and all these things. Uh, a great woman of faith and woman of God. But I think uh, at a different time, uh, she she would have been Reverend Holly too. So mm-hmm. it, it's been influential in my life, and uh, I just I'm very open, and I can tell you that there's just no way there's no way I would have been uh, I would have been able to complete this project uh, without prayer um, and, and just without uh, study, uh, just without without uh, some of these preachers and teachers. Uh, of the gospel. And so, yeah, hope, hope is a big part of it. Like I'm always hopeful. I would say, I think uh, Cornell West once said, I love the way he said it. He said, I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. No, optimism, you know, you, you don't, you don't necessarily, you can't be optimistic. Some of the things you see, you're not optimistic about them, but you're hopeful that, that things will change. And so I'm always, I mean, my, my faith is, that's one of the tenets. That's one of the foundational points that uh, any situation can turn around, uh, that w- we believe in a redemption, that, that any anyone and anything is redeemable. So, yeah, I think uh, you could certainly make the parallel, Sammy. No question you can make the parallel uh, between sports fans who are looking at a hopeless situation and, and faith, where you look at something and everybody else is looking at you like, I don't know why you're so hopeful. Uh, this looks like a mess. And then you get on the other side of it and say, all right, well, this was some diligence uh, and some patience. Uh, we got there. I mean, you see it in all sports. I mean, you see it this year. Hey, here, 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 how about the NFL? Great, great example mm-hmm. this year. In the NFL, your Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, what? <laughs> they were seven and nine. They were seven and nine last year. They hadn't made the playoffs in fourteen years. They hadn't won a championship in nineteen years. And then here comes Tom Brady, and there's a whole feeling, a different feeling about the franchise. And it happens in sports quite often. 
And, uh, you know, you may have just un- uh, uncovered something. Maybe that's my, my connection to sports. It reminds me of faith in some ways. Yeah, I mean, football, to continue your analogy, like football has very, like, many mi- miracle catches, right? There's, like, actual names for these things. And even what you were saying before about your mom, like, I guess the reverend or the pastor is usually the franchise player, right? That's the big name that everyone goes to see, the LeBron James or the Jordan or whatever it may be. But your mom, even though she's not the pastor or recognizes the reverend or whatever it may be, role players have a huge, like, pivotal role in championships and we've seen that repeatedly right like yes this your book is about the big three but rondo was coming along and he needed to chip in and he did stuff as well bench guys chipped in as well so it's not always like a church is the same way it operates in the same way as an nba team right where like you commit at the beginning of the season that you know for glory for future glory and you hope that it works that's right that's right. Uh, you know, not not not. It's not like you quoting the the Apostle Paul now. Now you you've done the preach here now. I like it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do think I think that is a uh, I, I think that is an astute point. You know, any pastor who is really doing it the right way will tell you that. You know, there are some people, and and th- th- there's some you know quote unquote celebrity pastors who really like the celebrity aspect of the job, and then there's some po- there's some pastors. Who have great popularity. They're compelling. Uh, they are grounded. Uh, they're grounded in the scriptures, and they have a really good way of making it relevant, and making a connection between antiquity and and, and 2021. But they, a lot of them will tell you, "Listen, I'm here. I, I'm just a vessel. I'm a vessel. I'm not trying to be. A, I'm, I'm not the superstar. I, you know, I cannot do my job unless I can't do my job well unless everybody." Uh, contributes uh, to this body. I'm just one. I'm just one person. I'm. I'm I can't lead the choir. Uh, I'm, I can't lead the deacon board. You know, I'm not on the hospitality committee. Like mm-hmm. everybody's got a part uh, in making the organization run. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's Ubuntu, with Doc Rivers introduced in in, in 2007. Said, Look, you know, I am because you are. And so I'm not asking you to take away anything individual from your game, Kevin Garnett or Paul Pierce or Ray Allen, not take it all away, but I want you to bring your, your gift to the collective and re- they will recognize who you are, but you need to recognize who they are as well. And how does it work for all of us? How do, how do we get this all together, all of these, uh, these various gifts? How do we take advantage of being an eclectic group and then unifying to produce a championship. And they bought into it. They bought into it, uh, and, and, and they achieved greatness. See, I think that's what it takes. Because really, you know, Sammy, if, I, if I'm being honest about it, if I look at the Celtics teams throughout history, mm-hmm. uh, okay, all, of their, uh, all of their championship teams, all right, the big three as a team, I'd say they were one of my favorites. I, I I could see them playing in any era. Like Bill Russell liked watching them play. He like he was really smitten with Garnett, but he really liked watching him play. And so Bill Russell That's the blessing right you know, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's yeah, so he's representing the sixties and you know, uh John Havlicek was still alive and I used to see him at the garden along with Jojo White, those teams from the seventies, and they liked watching them play. And then Danny uh, the, the architect of this team from the 80s, obviously, he put the, put the team together, and he enjoyed watching them. But 
you know, so this was a team that could fit into any era as a collective. But if I did an individual draft team by team, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that a big three are the best championship team in Celtics history would probably be, uh, you know, either, uh, 1963 or 1964 Celtics where John Havlicek is like the seventh guy <laughs> on the <laughs> roster, you know, young John Havlicek. And they got Russell and they got Kuzi and they got Heinz and Phil and Sam Jones. So that proves the point. You know, sometimes somebody's going to have more talent than you if you just look at it individually. But if you pull what you have together with what somebody else has, you might be able to come up with something special that kind of supersedes somebody's uh, greater talent. What you're talking about, there's a great moment in terms of buy-in and Doc Rivers where you can tell the story where he put 2,600 in the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, that was a, you know, and they came, just, they came up just short that year. That was in 2010. And that year, it was really um, it was a struggle for the Celtics. They were the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference. Uh, they won 50 games. Uh, they had championship aspirations, but they couldn't get going throughout the season. They just, they get it. Win five games, lose three games. Win six, lose three or four more. You know, up and down, back and forth. They had some injuries. Uh, the chemistry, they couldn't get right because at that point, you know, Ray Allen was starting to be, you know, slightly phased out a bit as the third guy of the big three. And by 2010, a big member of the, of the, of the pushing that big three door was Rondo. So you can even make the argument that by 2010, Rondo was the third guy and Allen was the fourth guy, or he was 3B. Rondo was 3A and Allen was 3B. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they had some issues. They had some issues, and Rondo and Allen, they had an, uh, a little bit of a shaky relationship. But as, as they were struggling, they were out in Los Angeles on a West Coast trip, and Doc Rivers said, Look, hey guys, I'm going to take, you know, give me a, I, I like $100 from everybody. And they didn't know where he was going. Garnett's like, well, what are you doing? You get $100. What do you mean, coach? Mm-hmm. And so uh, Doc Rivers told him what it was. Garnett got very excited about the idea. Gets all this money. They put it in a ceiling above the visitor's locker room in Staples Center. That was their last trip out of the regular season. And Doc said, hey, when we come back here, we come back here, we're going to retrieve our money. And that was his way of saying, yes, I believe you're a championship team. And sure enough, uh, they go into the postseason. Uh, in, the, uh, in the second round, they're able to uh, knock out the Cavaliers, who were the best team, uh, who were the number one team in the East. And uh, Eastern Conference Finals, they were able to knock out the Orlando Magic. Uh, and they get to the NBA Finals, and they take it to Game 7 against the Lakers. But uh, the Lakers just crushed them on the boards in Game 7. And, and they lost that uh, they lost that NBA Finals. So a lot of people ask me about this, and the reason I go into detail about that season is a lot of people ask, well, hey, did the big three did they underperform? Because you know you talk about all these great things, but ultimately they only won one championship. And I, I'd say if you look at it just on the surface, you, you can make that argument. But look at it. I, mean, I just mentioned they went to Game Seven of of the 2010 Finals, and in 2009. I would argue that that team was better than the championship team. They start off 27-2 and two in, 2000, in the 2008-2009 season, but once KG got hurt, not only did that change their fortunes for that season, 
they kind of changed the kind of player uh, Kevin Garnett was. It kind of robbed him, that injury, he had a knee injury that robbed him of his stamina and kind of took him away from being a MVP-type player. Still a very good, very smart player, but MVP, that was the death of MVP Garnett right there uh, in, in 2000, early 2009. So then how are you classifying your book? Is, is the big three, is this a love letter or a labor of love? Oh, it's definitely a labor of love because it's basketball. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, I, it's, you know, basketball is the sport, is the only sport that I could kind of sort of play, kind of sort of, but not really. I'm, I'm, it, it was a sport that I played, or let me more accurately, I was on basketball teams. Mm-hmm. I was not a basketball player. I was on basketball teams. So from a conceptual standpoint, I love five guys working together. Uh, I love the camaraderie. I love the rhythm of the game. I just wasn't very good, Sammy. It just wasn't, you know. <laughs> our range was probably, a shooting range, five feet in. So <laughs> anything outside five feet, like, I'd be wide open. I'd be wide open to like 12 or 15 feet, and I, I'm, I'm more likely that uh, I'm either going to drive into yeah. traffic when I'm wide open for 12 or 15 because I don't want to take that shot, or I'm going to pass it up. So, but I just love the game. I, I just I, I I used to think about it. I used to uh, I, I I wrote about it before I even knew what I was writing about. Uh, I was just obsessed uh, with basketball. So it's a labor of love. Uh, love letter in some senses, yes. I would say a love letter, but not a personal love letter from me to the game. I'd say a love letter with other voices, or a community love letter. Mm-hmm. Because there, 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 are a lot, there are a lot of people involved there. You know, a lot of voices uh, in, in the big three. There's the big three itself, and then the people who built the team, and uh, the people who kind of came through, who were almost a part of it, but not really. So Antoine Walker, almost a part of it, not really. You know, he, Danny Ames traded him, reacquired him, traded him again. You know, Chris Wallace was there. He's the one who drafted Paul Pierce. And, but he left just before uh, they won the championship. His his story is a part of it, too. So it's just, I, I, I told a friend of mine uh, a couple of months ago, we were just talking about the pandemic in general and things that we miss. And we all miss odd things. I mean, the obvious things, we all miss are, you know, just the freedom to walk around and mm. talk to people and gather in large groups. But I was saying to my friend, I said, you know, I really miss basketball people. Yeah. Like basketball, there's, there's just something about talking to people who love basketball. And, they, and they're like me, you know, you can't play, but they just <laughs> love the game. It's just a perspective that they have. And I just you know, talking to them. So I, I would say it was, it's a love letter in that sense because it's the perspective of basketball people who also happen to be, whether they be talented players or uh, executives or fans, those basketball people are represented in this book. You mentioned community. I want to expand that community a little bit because you've written about uh, the the Boston Red Sox, of course, Tom Brady, Belichick, the Patriots. Since about 2000, Boston has had many championship parades. Is there anything sort of like consistent that these teams do? Are there consistent traits? Are there consistent culture? Like, 
what what is it about these Boston teams that makes them so successful? Well, I've I've heard I've heard a couple theories on this. So some people think it's just luck. Okay, that's that's your easy answer, right? It's just yeah. luck. They just get lucky, and you know, out of those, uh, out of all those parades, and a half dozen of them uh, go to the Patriots. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, 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 isn't it lucky? All right, I'll, I'll I'll factor in luck. I'll give it I'll give it three percent luck. I'll, okay, I'll, I'll consider it. That's a that's my way of that's that's my way of saying. If you go with the luck theory, I'm going to give that validity. Fair enough. But what I really think it is, is teams pushing one another and kind of peeking over to see, okay, what did you do to win your championship and how does that translate to my sport? All right, so let's, for example, the Patriots are the first one of the 21st century. The Patriots win it first. And how did the Patriots win it in 2001? Everybody, I still remember the, uh, there was a story in ESPN Magazine. This was right after the time where uh, that movie, A Beautiful Mind, mm-hmm. uh, came out. And so I remember the, the, the art in ESPN Magazine where it said, Bill Belichick's Beautiful Mind. And it <laughs> kind of had him uh, in the shape of like an like a Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And... But, but that was their point. Their point was this team is is a champion because they have outsmarted. They've outsmarted everyone. Yeah, they got talented players, but they have been more intelligent, more thoughtful in their competition. So they went in 2001. But you're in a city that, that, that values that. You know, all the colleges and universities – uh, in the Boston area, in New England in general, but specifically in Boston, I mean, home of Harvard, home of MIT, and hey, the greatest university in, uh, of them all, Boston University, teach there. Uh, but, you know, all, you know, Northeastern, Boston College, you, know, you have so many great universities in this area. This is an area that values the life of the mind. This is an area that values high thought. So Bill Belichick and the Patriots win in 2001, what do the Red Sox do in 2002? They hire this whiz kid, smart guy from the Ivy League, Theo Epstein, youngest general manager in baseball history at 28 in 2002. They win in 2004 because he is willing to make some moves that are unconventional, such as trading Nomar Garcia Parra in the middle of the 04 season and embracing analytics and old school scouting, technology, uh, old school, uh, scouting methods. So they see that happening, and then the Celtics uh, right in there are hiring Danny Ainge, and they're looking at his ability to embrace old-school scouting and analytics, which we talk about in the big three. So when I, I, I do think there's a mental aspect here. And then the Bruins, the Bruins changed their whole outlook because for years – they had the same people. They had the same system year after year. They were criticized for it. There's only X amount of money that they spend. And they had the same uh, thinkers and same decision makers year after year. And they finally, uh, in 2005, changed it up and brought in Peter Shirelli to run their operation. And they signed two big-time free agents, one of them being Zidane Chara. So <clears throat> and that's a long way of saying, Sammy, look, it, it's not a coincidence. I think the Patriots started it off with the smart team. This is the way we're going to do business, and we're going to be successful here. We're not going to do it like everybody else. We're going to have talent. 
we got to have talent like everybody else, but we got, our, our decision-making has to be a little bit sharper. We've got to be ahead of the curve. And the Red Sox followed, and the Celtics followed, and the Bruins followed, and here we are in 2021. we got a bunch of championships. I don't think that's all luck. I think it's some luck, but not all. I think it's intentional. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all we're getting here in, uh, in, in 21, talking about a dozen championships in Boston since, uh, since uh, February of 2002. Yeah, and your book, too, the way it opens up with the Celtics being sold, uh, Danny Ainge being hired, um, he had an original coach that he inherited that wasn't Doc Rivers at that time. It mirrors very much uh, the way that Robert Kraft eventually bought the Patriots. Um, he had Parcells, and Parcells didn't quite get the vision of what he wanted to do, and he was kind of old school. Uh, so he had to go. So then they brought in Bilicek. Um, like, there's a lot of parallels between the two and how they kind of ignited uh, and rebirthed their teams. Yeah, and I think I think the big uh, the big thread between uh, uh, Wick Grossbeck and Robert Kraft, who are friends, by the way, uh, were friends before Wick bought the Celtics, is that there's something to be said for just pure joy and yeah. and pure passion. 14, look, you can't just go out there and, and say you, my, my joy, my enthusiasm is going to be enough to run uh, a, a, a multi-billion dollar or multi-million dollar operation. That's not enough. Uh, I need to have some training, too. But that, that goes a long way. I was talking to my wife the other day. Um, we were just having a conversation. And I said, you know what, if I ever, if I ever started a business or if I ever um, you know, ran one of these you know, media operations, I, I, I run a network or, um, a, a, you know, a, a newspaper, you know, put me in charge of the New York Times, put me in charge of the Wall Street <laughs> Journal, whatever. I said, the person I'm looking for, the separator is somebody who just loves it. Mm, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah I, want, yeah, I want good people. I want conscientious people. I want somebody who's going to approach the job and they're so into it that they're not even, they're not keeping score. There, there are clock watchers and there are people who perform the job. Now, clock watchers, they always let you know. Like, I, I've worked with them. I, you, you've worked with them. You've seen them. Clock watchers, they tell you exactly when they got in. They'll tell you exactly when it's time to go. Oh, wait, hey, look, hey, they, they won't be there a minute past 5 o'clock. <laughs> okay? mm -hmm. Like, hey, wait, 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 wait. Hey, it's time to go. Uh, if, if, <laughs> if, if, if there's vacation time... I believe in vacations. Trust me. I do believe in taking vacations. I think it's good for your mental health. But the clock watchers will not miss a single vacation day. Mm -hmm. Clock watchers, uh, they make up holidays if you can get vacation for them. <laughs> Whereas people who just love the job, they, you got to remind them. They get so lost in the work. You say, look, hey, do you realize you've been sitting there for like nine hours and you haven't moved? You just totally engrossed in what you're doing, that's what I want. Because it's just, that's passion. I tell you, don't tell me you, you have the ability to do the job. I think a lot of people have the ability to do a lot of these jobs, you know, not, not professional sports, I'm just talking about in general. But what makes somebody great is they just bring, they bring their personality to it. They bring their energy to it. And that job, they turn it into something else. They turn it into a work of art just because, they're so passionate about it. I think both of those guys are like that. I think 
Like Kraft loves football. He loves sports. He loves Boston. Uh, Wick is the same way. Like even like like his and, and I, I write about this in the book. Both Steve Palayuka and Bob Epstein said business wise, what you're asking me to do does not make sense. You're asking me to spend a lot of money to be your co-owner for this team. A lot of people don't come to the games. It's not making it's making money, but not a ton of money. I'm a businessman. Like what? Why, why are you asking me to do this? But it was their love for the Celtics that kind of superseded their love for business. So that got them there. And now it turns out that because of their passion for business and the Celtics, the Celtics are now one of the top revenue teams in the NBA. But they weren't when those guys became co-owners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it reminded me of the, the 90s commercial for the NBA for the love of the game. Right. Yeah. And that was what they centered everything around. And the reason why Michael Jordan left for a couple of years in the middle there was because the the love had kind of died, or the it wasn't as hot anymore. Right. <laughs> you couldn't. Uh, the coals were kind of uh, dark now. Right. They weren't heating up anymore. And so he had to step away. But I think it's just like anything else. When you know, if you if you break up with your girl for a little bit and you realize. Yo, I'm letting her get away. Like you gotta, you go back to her, and you're like, "Yo, baby, I'm sorry, I stepped away." Right? Like you recognize what you have, uh, because it's special. And so, anytime, like you said, you could do something out of love, it's a lot better than doing it out of like fear or obligation. Yeah. yeah, all right, those other right, things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and don't you dare break up with her. Don't you break up with her. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do, and listen, if you do, hey, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe that was your shot. That was your opportunity. Yeah. All right. We go into the world. We got to leave it there. That's uh, you know, we get, we gave a little message for the kids. Uh, where yeah, right. where can people find you online to know more about uh your writing, your work on Boston Sports, uh, brother from another on Peacock which I'm sorry we didn't cover, but where can people find you online to find all these kind of cool things you're doing? Well, you just mentioned that. That's one of them, uh, Brother from Another on Peacock, 3 to 5 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. So that's one of the spots. Um, uh, Twitter, um, at Michael S. Holly. Uh, if you want the book, uh, my, first, my first thing I say to everybody is I love independent bookstores, so I'll, I'll always shout out your, your local independent bookstore first. If that is something you want to do, even if you're, you're saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not even nowhere near Boston. I'm not, my independent bookstore is not going to have it. Well, your independent bookstore will order it, can. I'd say support them first. Uh, that, that's one way of doing it. You can also go to Amazon, old school way, uh, order it uh, that way as well. But, yeah, I, mean, I just uh, I love doing this, and, and thanks for the opportunity, man. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you about this uh, as you can tell I'm, I'm pretty fired up about it uh, something that's really important to me and meaningful so i'm glad that uh, you, you you've taken some interest in it and uh, given me a platform to talk about it oh thank you uh it was an interesting era because as you said uh there's many different celtics teams in different celtics eras and i'm old enough to like remember seeing these guys the big three paul pierce kevin garnett uh ray allen and just like just recognizing that that was a special team like you, you could see that they were set up for success. And I always felt that, like, Kevin Garnett spent a little bit too much time in uh, in Minnesota, like with the T-Wolves. Whether it was loyalty or not, like, we saw later on, like, we saw how Carl Malone and Gary Payton were on that one Lakers team. 
I think Carnett should have maybe left a little bit earlier, but to pick up on one of the threads we talked about, which is timing, it worked out in the end. Yeah, sure did. Sure did. He, he wound up with the right with the right people around him, with the right coach and, and the uh, and two perfect teammates for his game. It really complimented his game, Paul Pierce and Ray Allen. So, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we all got a chance to see it. Uh, it was an interesting team to watch and uh, up close. Just an uh, interesting team to study with all the uh, dynamics and, and uh, different personalities. So, yeah, the book is The Big Three, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and The Rebirth of the Boston Celtics. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we covered quite a bit. We covered the love of the game. Uh, stay with your girl. If you're like, don't blow your shot. We covered uh, <laughs> the big three, uh, the Celtics family, and faith and hope. I think we did quite a bit of work. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's that's uh, we could all of those are, are all could be separate podcasts themselves. So mm-hmm. do that at, at about at just under an hour. I think that's a record. So yeah. Hey, we, thanks, man. Good job. I really I really enjoyed it. Truly. Thank you so much. Yeah, and like I said, high five for the book. Like uh, you did a great job. I was excited to read about that era, and I I didn't know all that stuff about Rondo, for example. So I always I always thought he was a great player, and I never really fully understand. Uh, like what happened? Why did the Celtics kind of break up with him? How did he end up where he ended up? You know what I mean? So it was really interesting to see that backstory. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yo, that was sports writer Michael Hawley. This is my summer lair and I am Sammy. Loyalty is an interesting trait in the NBA. I often felt Garnett was too loyal to the T-Wolves. He should have left earlier. We saw that one Lakers team with um, Carl Malone, Gary Payton, right? That super team. They left their teams because loyalty was shortchanging them. It wasn't working anymore. I gotta see other teams. Kevin Garnett was frustrated from 2004 to 2007. He was drafted in 1995. It's such an interesting subplot to Michael's NBA book, The Big Three. Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and the rebirth of the Boston Celtics. As a Boston sports writer, he's written about Tom Brady, yet Tom Brady left New England. Paul Pierce, granted he was traded, yet he left Boston. Ray Allen infamously went to Miami. When Kobe retired in 2016, part of his legacy was he played for only one team. That is a long, hard marriage. The Lakers and Kobe kept their promises as recited on draft night. I suspect Curry will do the same with the Warriors. I think that'll be one of the last ones we'll see like that. Most every other major franchise player has more or less played for more than one team. Maybe honest. Anyways, if you want to hang out with Michael Hawley, head on over to Peacock where he and Michael Smith co-host Brother from Another, Sports, Culture, Entertainment, and Politics. It kind of mirrors this conversation that I had with Michael. Uh, That's a fun party every weekday afternoon on Peacock. Brother from another. As for me, you can RSVP to my social media party, my summer layer for all three, Twitter and IG and Facebook. Super simple in a complicated world. And please, please, can I be honest here? Don't just blindly follow me. (laughs) I don't need the dopamine hits. They're great, but I don't need them. Add to the conversation. Let's talk about these things. Tell me tell me who are some of your favorite Celtic players. Give me your top five. Your top five Celtic players. Not the best players. Not the greatest players. Just the ones that you dig the most. 
My summer layer for all three, Twitter, IG, and Facebook. See, now that's a much better reason to click and follow, right? We can have a conversation. We can get into all this. Thank you for listening to me in a Netflix world. Celtics, yo.